This is episode number 369 with co-founder and CEO of Edgeworth Analytics and Edgeworth Economics, John Johnson. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. Just got off the phone with John Johnson over just over an hour ago, and we had an amazing chat and still under the great impressions from that conversation. A uh, quick note, this episode is available in video version. You can find it at superdayscience.com slash 369. So check it out there if you'd like to see the video version of our chat. So what you need to know about John Johnson is that he is the CEO and the co-founder of two companies. Uh, Edgeworth Economics, uh, which he founded in 2009, over 10 years ago, and Edgeworth Analytics, which he founded in 2019. And they use data to do very cool things at both organizations. So at Edgeworth Economics, they use data to help with litigations, help with cases that go to court in front of judges or juries and extract insights and then present them to juries. So as you can imagine, it's a very exciting space of analytics and uh, you will hear uh, of a few examples of cases that John has been involved with and learn how they work. And now on to Edgeworth Analytics. This is a consulting company in the space of data, in the space of analytics, where they focus on helping businesses overcome any data challenges. So again, there's going to be a lot of valuable insights. Especially you'll find this episode useful and valuable if you're a business owner, a director, an executive, an entrepreneur, or you want to become one of those four categories. Because uh, John is going to guide you and help understand what it means to use analytics to your business advantage. And this episode is actually going to be useful for absolutely anybody in the space of data science and analytics because of all the amazing case studies. And here we here are some examples of the things that we're going to be talking about. Uh, taking a bet on yourself, entrepreneurship, and John's background, how he got his PhD at MIT, what uh, he did, where he went to Washington, how he started his businesses, uh, a business culture, case case examples, data science data science versus data analytics, domain knowledge, econometrics, and how it's a combination of economics and statistics, uh, how to pick a consultant if you're a business owner, coronavirus uh, and the states reopening and what they've been tracking around that, some interesting insights there, uh, building an analytics function versus hiring external consultants as a business uh, HR analytics, lip service analytics versus data doesn't lie, and many, many more cool topics. Uh, I found myself sitting on the edge of the seat uh, listening to John, so I highly recommend checking out this episode. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. And I bring to you co-founder and CEO at Edgeworth Analytics and Edgeworth Economics, John Johnson. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you on board. And today we've got a super special guest, John Johnson, calling in from Washington, D.C. John, how are you doing today? Doing great. So fun to be here and excited about our discussion. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm very excited about uh, what we have to talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, so as we're chatting before the podcast, uh, you live in Washington, D.C., and you get the opportunity to have a run Oh, before the coronavirus, you could run towards like the White House and all the monuments. Tell us a bit about that experience. How is it living in Washington? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to be in Washington. It's a great place to raise a family. I've lived here about 20 years. And um, but, you know, I, my job and my work has nothing to really do with the government at all. So I'm kind of a little bit rare. And there is a group of us here that actually just are consultants or do other kinds of work that have nothing to do with the federal or the state government. So for me, a lot of my attraction to the government is, you know, I see all the big buildings and I can go every morning and go for a run and sort of it's a beautiful place to visit. Um, and just uh, I'm always struck by sort of the, the monuments and I have my little run and I go up the Lincoln Memorial steps every morning. So I definitely miss that. It's one of the things I miss the most from the coronavirus shutdown is the ability to do that. But 
you know, this is an interesting city, but there's a lot more to it than the political world that you see. I kind of liken it to, you know, people who live in Los Angeles, there's Hollywood, but there's other stuff there too. And in DC, mm. our Hollywood, unfortunately, is the government, <laughs> but there's other stuff to uh, do here as well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, how long have you been in Washington? Uh, I moved here uh, in July of 2001. I, um, I've been a college professor for a few years at the University of Illinois, which is in uh, the Midwest. And um, I was very quickly realized I was going to be the most popular professor on campus. But I, um, I found being an academic a little bit too theoretical, a little too lonely for me. So I decided to try consulting. And D.C. is a great city for economist jobs. So my wife and I kind of moved to the East Coast and just tried it and figured I'd try to get a job. And if that job didn't work out, we wouldn't have to move again. And I've uh, been here ever since. Awesome. What do you mean by most popular professor? Well, you know, I had like, I, one of the things I would do with the undergraduates, I'd have classes with about 75, 80 students, and I would learn all their names. Um, mm. They didn't show up for class, I'd call them and find out where they were. <laughs> um, and so I was really popular, people would come to my office hours. In fact, you know, one of my uh, closest friends and business partners actually was an undergraduate in my very first class 20 years ago. Oh, wow. I know he and I stayed in touch over the years. And when I started my business, asked him if he would move here to help uh, run our HR function. And so, mm. um, you know, so being a professor was a great experience in many respects, but, um, you know, being an academic is a lot about the research you do. And although I like research, um, I just found it to be a little bit too theoretical. And in my job now, I get to work on real world problems. And that's what I really wanted to do with my career. Fantastic. That's, that's a great analogy. And um, we talk uh, uh, quite a bit about guests who've been in like an academia background, like the difference. And I, I maybe we'll touch on that as well between the difference between academic applications and real world. Um, but I want to talk a bit about uh, you, your P you got your PhD in economics from MIT. What is it like studying at MIT? Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> um, you know, look, I, um, I always joke that I felt like I was one of the dumbest people in the economics department. But, you know, being the dumbest person at MIT isn't terrible. I mean, in my class, there were four, the, four John Bates Clark medal winners who are the, you know, the best economist under the age of 40. Four of those mm. people were in my graduating class alone. Wow. wow. Esther Duflo, who just won the Nobel Prize, was a classmate of mine. You know, like, wow. Yeah, so I know her. And it's like, wow, I know all these like, really famous academic people. So one of the best parts about it is that you know, I met a lot of really smart people who really improved my skills as an economist. Um, the other hand, it was really challenging. And, you know, everyone who's there was the smartest person in their class in undergraduate. I mean, you get mm. there, you're not the smartest person anymore. You know, mm. um, you could get a 19 on an exam out of 100, and that was passing. <laughs> you know? wow. And so when I look back on my time there, I think to myself, you know, I'm really glad I worked hard and made it through. It was very difficult at the time and sort of humbling. Um, but it set me up so well for my future career. And I'm just so thankful for the opportunity, both for the people who I met there, but also just being trained really well as an economist. So that's, uh, but it's, it, it was really one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Mm, yeah. And uh, to your point, that's like amazing um, place to be. I would, I would 10 times out of 10, I would choose to be the dumbest person in the room than the smartest person in the room. Like, if you're the smartest person in the room, there's nobody to learn from, right? There's nowhere to grow. I would much rather be the dumbest than like, okay, I'm the dumbest, but at least I can like learn so much right now. Oh, I definitely had people to learn from. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, and then uh, when you, so you moved to Washington in 2001, um, but there's like about eight years until you founded your first company, which we, we will talk about in, in a bit. What did you do for those eight years? Yeah, so I worked for a large economic consulting firm. And, um, you know, I had a really successful career there. I learned from a lot of interesting people. It was a, you know, there are a number of these different types of firms. This particular firm was a bigger firm. And basically what I found was um, I did have a lot of success. I was told repeatedly that I was, you know, a superstar, that I was on the right track. But if I could be a little more patient and just waste my turn, um, I could, you know, I would in the future be able to, you know, do what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think if you're a successful driven person, being told to be patient is probably the worst thing you could ever <laughs> you do. And so along the way, I started to realize not only did I have ideas about what I thought, how a company should run, what I wanted to do, but I was willing to take a bet on myself and say, okay, well, then if you think you can do this better, then go do it. Um, now, at the time, people looked at me like I had 
six heads. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You think you can sort of go do this yourself. You're sort of a young punk kid. Um, maybe I was, but uh, it turned out to be the best thing I ever chose to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I remember when I was starting my first uh, business. Oh, yeah, when I was leaving my employment, the person most scared was my mom. <laughs> she was thinking, what are you doing? All that security, you're throwing it away. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, my business partners, as it turned out, the people that came and did this with me, you know, both of them within the first uh, year, they both, their wives were pregnant with their first kids. Um, it was crazy. And it was during the 2009 recession. So one of wow. the things that has been striking is that, you know, as we've been going through the coronavirus crisis, which is providing different challenges, I am surprised how much it reminds me of the kinds of things we had to do back in 2009. Yeah. Um, but I do think the good news is in these, in these types of economic settings, it's incredible opportunity. It's a real yeah. chance for companies to innovate, to be aggressive, to think about how they can serve in different ways. And so, um, but look, I never realized I was going to be an entrepreneur. Now, people who know me are like, of course you were going to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't appreciate that. And I didn't know yeah. how much having a vision and having a way of thinking things should be done. And that's sort of the core of entrepreneurial people. I find is that mm-hmm. you think you have a better mousetrap um, mm-hmm. and it really bothers you when things aren't done the way you want them to be done. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I had not appreciated how much career success um, and validation comes from, at least for someone with that makeup, having a value system, having a, a set of, you know, behaviors that you subscribe to in your company um, and so, yeah, we're a rigorous company. We do analytics and litigation work, but we also have a core sort of set of values that we follow, which is both about how we do the work, but how we treat our employees, how we sort of manage the company. And, and it's interesting because I just had not appreciated how much of my personal validation would come from those things, uh, mm. as much as also from doing really high quality work. Mm, fantastic. Tell us a bit about your values. What, what, what are like some of the core values? Well, I think the biggest, you know, the name of the company, Edgeworth Economics and Edgeworth Analytics, Edgeworth was a, uh, uh, you know, 19th century economist who basically um, discussed the gains from trade. And there's something called the Edgeworth box, which is where you can find the point where you can trade such that everybody's made better off and nobody's made worse off. Mm. <laughs> and that's actually, you know, um, and so in uh, introductory economics classes across the country, you're taught the Edgeworth box and you do these little curves and you find the optimal point. Um, that's the corporate philosophy that we were going to create a system where everybody could be made better off. Part of what we do at our firm is we train young economists to contribute in different ways to advance their career. And not, you know, and that's at all levels. Even our undergraduates who come and are going off to graduate school, what we're trying to do is provide them with opportunities so they can be better economists and sort of pursue whatever their career is. And so from that respect, you know, that is kind of the core value of the firm. Um, now, tied with that, of course, is also highest quality work, being responsive to our clients, being smart about customer service, those kinds of things. Um, it's about, though, an experience for our clients and our employees, which really puts them in the best position to succeed and really being a team. Mm, fantastic. Lo- I love it. I love uh, when those are very thought through and, uh, you know, putting the clients first and taking care of the team, of course amazing um set of values and i'm sure it's it's uh it's a culture once you build it i think you you mentioned before the podcast you're about 80 people in in your company right now like once you build the culture like that around those values uh anybody joining naturally has to either fit in or they they will like other people will notice that they just don't fit in with those values and and some of the most painful things you deal with when you have a company is that when people don't fit the culture even if they seem to fit on other dimensions It, that's actually sort of one of the things you you have to be committed to the culture first and foremost. Even you know someone can be the, the you know the best um, economist in the world, but if they don't fit in with the culture, then that's not good enough, right? You've got to sort of once you commit to a culture as a firm, that's your DNA. That's what makes it distinct. So um, you know that makes that's part of what we look at when we recruit, and that's part of what we're looking for in people that we hire and develop and mentor and bring along. Is we want people we want to you know for me as a business owner now. 10, 11 years in, I'm looking at what's the next generation. I've had a very successful career. I'm not saying my career is over, but for me, there's a there's a big part of my next 10-year plan is really my legacy. Can I leave this firm in the hands of another group of economists that can take the torch and continue? And so when you're trying to do that, you're looking for people that are, again, entrepreneurial, that understand the culture, that are really good at what they do, but also, um, you know, 
are willing to take over a vision for how they want to transform the firm. Obviously, if you're passing the legacy, you've got a certain core set of values, but they have to be able to shape it, develop it, make it their own. And so that's what I find is my challenge. That's like my personal career goal for the next 10 years is how do we do that um, in a smart way? But those are different challenges. I'm just really proud of the fact that most companies don't get to the point they can even start to think about that. We're lucky that we can. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. Hope you're enjoying this amazing episode. I've got a cool announcement for you and we'll get straight back to it. Virtual Data Science Conference. Curious? Well, you've probably heard of Data Science Go, the conference that we've been running for the past three years in Southern California. And maybe you've attended. If so, it was super cool to have you there. But maybe you weren't able to attend for the reason of being in a completely different country or the flights were too long or the timing wasn't perfect. There could be plenty of reasons why you weren't able to attend. But now we're bringing Data Sands Go to you. So this June, we're hosting Data Sands Go virtually and you can attend and get an amazing experience there. And guess what? The best part is that it's absolutely free. Just head on over to datasandsgo.com and get your tickets today. This will be our very first time running a virtual event, but nevertheless, we're still going to combine the three key pillars of fun, amazing talks and networking into this event. You'll hear from speakers like John Crone, Sam Hinton, Adlan de Ponteves, Stephen Welch and many others. Plus, you'll be able to network with your peers. This event is going to be epic on all fronts and we'd love to see you there. Head on over to datasensego.com virtual and get your ticket today. The number of seats is limited. We'd love to have everybody there, but for our very first event, we're limiting the number of seats to make it more manageable. So make sure to get your tickets today if you want to be part of this. And on that note, I look forward to seeing you there. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. Um, let's uh, tell us a bit about what you do. Like, uh, like you've painted a picture of the company. It sounds like an amazing place to work and, and it has a great culture. And I'm sure you take great care of the clients. But what do you do? Let's start with Edgeworth Economics, the company that's over 10 years old. Yeah. So the economics company, basically, a lot of our work is in litigation. And there we have a, a number of people that are expert witnesses. And so what we generally do is we in, are involved in litigation cases where there are large data sets. You know, my example is, you know, I had a case many years ago where I had data on every chocolate candy bar sold in the United States. Wow. And I had to look at the data and figure out what happened to pricing over a 10-year period. And you know, I had to go tour some chocolate factories, learn about the industry. And so our economic consulting litigation work, we basically parachute into different industries. We get the data. We learn all about everything about how, the, how it works. And then we develop our expert opinions in different litigated settings on sort of how either a workforce works in our labor work or how a product market works in our antitrust work. So that's what the litigation company does. Then the analytics company, which is more recent, that sort of takes that same skill set with these highly credentialed PhDs and statisticians and MBAs. And now we're like, we're also help companies sort of with their practical issues like, okay, outside of litigation, how can we help? you? And that business, you know, there's a number of different angles. One part of it is HR related, where we do a lot of education on HR analytics and consulting on HR analytics. Then just sort of general business analytics where companies have a data question. And you're like, I have a data question and I need help. I don't exactly know what I need. I just know I need some help. Can you get me there? <laughs> um, can you just help walk us through how to structure a data problem, how to think about a data problem? And then the other part our analytic company has been doing, which is sort of interesting, is with the coronavirus sort of um, taking over the world, we've actually launched a coronavirus um, impact study where we basically are posting almost on a daily basis different analytics on the coronavirus. Um, and this is more of a public service, but it's actually been interesting because there's a lot of companies that are interested in this, where we have dashboards for different states as they're reopening in the United States, showing what the cases are doing on a daily basis, matching them demographics. We have a lot of reports on the restaurant industry, um, working on a report on the alcohol industry and how drinking has skyrocketed <laughs> during <laughs> the coronavirus. But um, a lot of different types of things like that. So we have a pretty broad-based business, but the common theme is rigorous data analysis explained simply. And that mm -hmm. transcends everything we do. Okay, wow, that's, that's really cool. And uh, it's, a, it's a great foundation to start. Like uh, you did the Edgeworth economics where uh, you have to be rigorous, right? You're going to court, you're doing, you're presenting to, I guess, juries, to, you're acting as a witness. You, you can't go wrong there, right? Like you can't do, um, 
Can you maybe give us an example of like the, if you're able to share from, from the 10 years, one or two of the, the most uh, memorable cases that you had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, obviously our testimony is usually confidential, but once I've testified or decisions have come out, I can talk about the work. So mm-hmm. I'll give you sort of um, one really interesting case involved grocery products where mm-hmm. I actually testified for, I worked in a case for almost uh, eight or nine years of my life. No way. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I had data on every uh, grocery product uh, sold or shipped in the Midwest for a 10, 12 year period. Wow. Uh, and it basically had, it was an, an antitrust case involving was alleged allocation of markets where sort of one competitor agrees to not compete with another. Mm. And that's again, that's what a, does antitrust mean? All right. So antitrust is the part of the US law that has to do with competition economics. Mm-hmm. And how firms, and so there's certain laws in the United States, particularly what's called the Sherman Act, which you cannot agree with a competitor on pricing, and you cannot agree with a competitor mm-hmm. on how to whether you can serve a market. So you can't say, hey, you take these clients, I'll take those clients, and I won't compete with you, and you don't compete with me. Okay, mm-hmm. that's not allowed. That's illegal. That's actually a criminal violation. It's actually, a criminal violation in most parts of the world. But that's a, so you can't mm-hmm. you can't discuss with your competitors these things. You've got to be very careful. So a lot of the types of antitrust cases we deal with involve either communications between competitors, alleged communications, and what the consequences were. So in this particular case, what I was asked to do was a lot of things, but ultimately I had to process these terabytes of data on grocery shipments to see if there was a change in pricing or if the prices were different over time. And what I actually testified in court about was were there what would the damages have looked like if something had happened, right? So the jury gets to decide if something happened or not. And I had to calculate, okay, well, assuming it did happen, were there damages? And so in that case, I remember I had to um, try to explain to the jury that what the other expert had done had sort of not taken account for lots of other factors that would have affected prices. And how do you explain that to a jury? That's a fairly simple concept. I actually talked about having a taco truck (laughs) at a restaurant. And imagine you have a taco truck. And how do you convey that, you know, if my chef got sick, or suddenly the cost of the meat for my tacos went up, this other expert was not counting any of those things as potentially affecting prices. Do you really have to be creative? Like I did a good billion runs of data analysis with huge Mm -hmm. data sets, but then a lot of the art was how do I take all this analysis and show in a very pinpointed way to a jury, okay, here's what happened. So the jury ultimately um, ruled in our favor um, and that was kind of cool, we won the case. But also, I remember one of the most compelling moments I was up on the stand talking and the foreman of the jury was this little old lady and I'm talking and I'm looking at the jury and she's taking notes and I can see her smiling at me and like Mm -hmm. I knew you were teaching. And so um, that's one of my favorite stories. I mean, very few cases actually end up in a jury trial, um, Mm -hmm. as it turns out, like people think, oh, it's all about trial. Actually, most of my work is in depositions where lawyers are questioning me and briefing and hearings before judges. But that's the kind of stuff where I learned a lot about an industry I processed a ton of data, but the real hard work after processing the data and coming up with my opinions is how did I translate it to a common group, you know, an audience that was not interested in data. You know, like I called for jury duty. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was a lot of the challenges that I faced in that case. But that was really rewarding. Okay. Wow. So the jury in this case ruled that there was collusion. That there was not collusion. There was not collusion. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, wow. So that that's uh, what about any uh, any cases where um, the result was very like for instance somebody um, I don't know what's the most severe consequence of a case that you were involved. Well, in? look, I mean, I, you know, the economic part of a case is only sort of one part of it, right? So mm-hmm. it's important when you do this kind of work. You know, I'm usually asked to opine on certain circumscribed issues, right? Yeah. Um, I don't, as an economist, for example, in cases where there might be criminal violations, I'm not usually asked to opine on whether someone did something. Um, yeah. because that's not, um, you know, that's not the role for the economist, right? How am I supposed yeah. to know two people agreed to something? So, but the reality is there are gigantic fines. There are gigantic criminal penalties. There are gigantic civil penalties that come yeah. with this. And so we could be dealing with cases where the damages could be billions and billions of dollars. It's called bet the company litigation. And so... Yeah. Um, I don't want to underplay. It's very stressful because you are, you know, companies that are hiring you or plaintiffs that are hiring you, you know, there's a lot at stake in these cases. And so what we do at our firm is we sort of, you know, I have a reputation for sort of being very scientific. 
very driven by the data. People hire me who want an objective opinion based on the data, but one that is, you know, I am very meticulous about the science and how you apply the science of statistics and economics. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's just what I do. Um, But the stakes are always high and you don't win every case. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even even times, and this is one of the frustrating things, even times where I believe the economics we did was the right economics, that's not always the definitive ruling in a piece of litigation. Judges can decide for a whole host of reasons, or there's different standards. And so being something that's good enough to be published may not be the standard by which a court is saying they're going to apply to whether or not an economic analysis is good enough for the opinion. And that's just a reality of what you have to accept when you're an expert that I can do the best economics in the world, but there's other things that affect it as well. As long as I'm confident that the opinion I've offered is consistent with my standards, is responsible, is the truth. (laughs) That's yeah. what you have to be comfortable. Gotcha. And so about this case, I just wanted to uh, like under, understand it fully. So you using patterns of movement and sales of grocery products in the Midwest, uh, your goal and what you were able to do was to demonstrate whether that there was no collusion between two companies just by through the sales patterns that you're seeing overall? It was a little more, it was more along the lines of, I was able to demonstrate that the prices weren't changed in a way that was consistent with collusion. Oh, okay. So basically we had, you know, there were several facilities that were at issue and basically a lot of it dealt with how far a grocery product shipped and who could you turn to for competition in the face of a price increase. That's the kind of stuff that we deal with. So yeah, there were maps in that case. There were how far the products shipped. There were what were the demand factors that changed different types of products. Um, how often were they bundled? How big were the customers? You know, if you're a one of the things that comes up quite a bit in our cases is you know very large customers have buying power. You know, Walmart is always the classic example. Walmart usually gets the best price no matter what. Yeah. They a lot of buying power, so that's a big competitive factor that has to be accounted for when you think about these. Things. So. That was the basic idea, sort of really getting into the data at a granular level to understand where product flowed, who bought the product, what were they looking to for competitive, you know, what were the other competitive conditions, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, through many years of working on cases like that, and what, what's, the, what's the number of cases off the top of your head that you've done? Probably about 100. Through like working through 100 cases so rigorously, some of them taking many years, You've probably developed an approach to analytics. What what is your approach? Well, and I, I think yeah, I have. <laughs> I think that it's um, what I rely on, and this is true in both my litigation work and my analytics work, although they're slightly different focuses. But in both, at the end of the day, it's about what is the question we're actually trying to answer. Always coming up with it very concrete. Here's the question: What can the data? What is the data that's available? And then how can you rigorously test what you're looking at? And mm-hmm. rigorously testing, you know, it can be things like different statistical techniques. Uh, one of the issues that comes up quite a bit on the litigation side, and it comes up on the consulting side, but a little less, is the importance of averages and how mm-hmm. averaging data can create all sorts of problems if you're actually trying to understand very nuanced phenomena, right? Sometimes averages are perfectly fine for an answer, but oftentimes averages can obscure tons of variation in experiences and economic phenomenon. And so um, what I believe in doing is you actually test. You can test whether an average applies. You can go in and you can do statistical tests. And um, I wish I could say I'm the one who came up with the statistical tests. I'm not. It's a, a whole legacy of statisticians, although sometimes talk to lawyers, you'd think I was the pioneer of some of these tests. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, whatever the problem is, it's, it's thinking hard about question, data, what's an answer that's actually useful, and then what are the limitations of the answer? And if you follow that process, whether you're answering a, a question for your company in an analytic sense or a question in a litigation sense, it's going to lead you to the right answer. And more important, it's going to highlight what are the strengths and weaknesses of the analysis. I think people get a false sense of security around data that just because they're using data, it means they're going to get the right answer or the rigorous answer. Data in and of itself is not enough. It's, it's well thought out data analysis that can get you to the right answer. But what is the right answer? Oftentimes the right answer is, wow, this is interesting. It's pointing in this direction, but you know what? I better consider X, Y, Z as well. All right, let's go back and get more data. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Why analytics? Uh, You you founded uh, Edgeworth uh, Analytics, the second company in 2019, when 
already data science is a hype. Everybody knows data science is a much is a very attractive term. Um, how do you distinguish between data analytics and data science? Yeah. So what I think of it as is you know data science involves a whole host of both the technical um, machine learning algorithms, uh, programming capabilities, data capabilities, new data software. I mean, I think it's a pretty broad sense of tools. Um, I think analytics, though, is more true to what it is that I do in my litigation work and my consulting work, which is really focused on what is the question you need to answer to function as a business? What is the problem you're trying to solve and how do we get there? It's not about selling you on, let's build a dashboard. Um, not that I have anything against dashboards, but that's not data analytics. A dashboard is data. <laughs> what the data means is the analytics piece. And what I found in my experience dealing with companies, very large, sophisticated companies, is the number of times that, first of all, they actually don't understand their data. They don't understand in a large organization that the sources of data they need to draw upon are from different places. And they actually don't understand that, you know, how do you get to an answer? So the analytics, in my mind, is our ability to serve our clients in a different way where we can say, what are the practical questions you need to answer? I kind of felt that, um, I mean, I can give you a great example. I had, did a pitch for a case a few years ago, actually, you know, because I've been thinking about analytics for a while, and I had done a pitch for a case for a fairly sophisticated company, and they'd asked about some things related to uh, website analytics and stuff like that. How do you track who was on their website? And we put together a really sophisticated proposal with a lot of unique um, insights, how you would build statistical models to actually identify what the web traffic would look like, who the users were things that we thought were really insightful. And the response we got back <laughs> was, that was mind blowing. What a great proposal. We never thought of that, but we're just looking for a dashboard provider. <laughs> and, and so um, that was a really formative experience because I realized that lots of people are talking the language of analytics, but it's such a broad field. Yeah. That, you know, what, what we are selling is actually something very specific, which is you have a data problem or a problem you think you have the data to process it, but you're not sure. You need help. <laughs> How can we help you? It's kind of like having a smart team right behind you to say, look, let's work together. We're not interested in sort of selling you on like, hey, why don't we have a, I mean, if you want to keep coming to us with problems, of course, we want to help you. But I'm not trying to sell you a software package or a dashboard. What I'm trying to help you is sort of say, look, I've got a pretty important targeted problem. I need some smart people to get me an answer that I can understand and that can get me to where I need to be. That's what we do, and I think that's what differentiates us. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, understood. And why, why these three branches? So I understand the coronavirus impact uh, study, and I noticed uh, on your website there was one interesting one recently about where employers have to, uh, in some cases, like you were doing analysis into, or someone from your team was doing analysis into whether employers uh, in what cases employers need to make the decision between diversity and experience, and that, uh, as I understood it, there was uh, this um, legacy that maybe from a long time ago when diversity wasn't a priority of an employer and they weren't as careful about it, they hired a lot of people in not in a non-inclusive way, and now those people have more tenure in the company, and now when they're doing uh, job cuts, uh, that that tenure is going to be taken into account, so they're going to be stepping on the old uh, minefield of not being diverse. So that was a very interesting like analysis. So, look, the thing that when you look at what we are offering as our services, like, the HR focus is partly because mm. it is a direct link to a lot of the work we've done on the litigation side. We have a very active labor and employment practice where we deal with companies a lot of times. So we sort of felt like a really great place to sort of focus in part was on HR issues because there's a ton of them. And it's a place where HR managers um, are not trained as much in data. You know, I actually taught at an HR school that was part of where I was a professor. And so um, we find that that's a great place for our educational function because that's an area where data is important, but people really need some help. We do general business analytics. Um, you know, we have one client that we're helping them with retail store data, trying to assess how much inventory they should have, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we can do sort of general data analytics in that sense with different businesses. Um, and then the coronavirus is partly, as I said, a function of the fact that this is a really exceptional time. And we're like, look, 
partly just as a public service and partly because people are really interested. We think it's important that if we can provide some insights and get some good data work out there, we will. Um, but I think the more important thing is when you are a firm that has a that is used to doing what we do, which is parachuting into industries to help with specific problems. What we're really marketing is not so much just HR or just business analytics or supply chain analytics. It's that there's a process we bring to the table that is very rigorous that can work in a lot of settings. And that's really our marketing hook, quite frankly, is that what we're here to do is help you identify your question, identify your data, get to the heart of the matter for you. Um, we have something we call it our data blueprint plan, but it's basically, you know, we sort of help lay out a blueprint for you of how to solve your problems. So that's what we do. Um, but those are just some areas we've called out. I mean, there's also a little bit on polling because um, ironically, uh, I did write a book a few years ago on data in our everyday lives. And it came out in 2016. And what happened was when we sort of went out to do media work on the book, uh, the only thing anybody want to talk about was polling. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to talk about polling all the time. But um, as a result, we have a lot of, you know, it's another showcase where we teach. So it's this interesting intersection of where are the areas where we can provide value added in teaching about data to translate into how we can help people learn about their data. Mm -hmm. Understood. So let's talk a bit more about uh, this parachuting into industries. I loved your example from the beginning where you had data on the chocolate uh, bars from all you know for a whole year and you had to what you said is you had to go and tour chocolate factories to get domain knowledge and i hugely respect that about data scientists who practice that when you not only just focus on the data and get insights from that you actually go in and get that domain knowledge what does domain knowledge mean to you and what maybe uh what are your best practices for acquiring it fast yeah. So look, as an economist who is a statistician, um, I'm not only driven by the data. I mean, the field that my PhD is in is econometrics, which is the merging of economics to statistics, right? So the idea there is that I'm a professional economist. I think about how companies work. How does a firm work? You know, I have all this sort of theoretical knowledge from my training, but then I have the practical knowledge. So what I need to do to be smart about data problem is I have to understand the business the best I can to answer the question. So how do I try to do that? Well, you know, obviously it's dictated by the question I'm looking at, but I'm often focused on pricing data. That's a big part of what I tend to work with. And so what are the practical realities of the business? You know, I always tell clients, I don't have a monopoly on good ideas. I'm not here to come in and tell you, I know your business better than you do. I want to hear what you think about your business. And it doesn't mean that the data will always support every person's views, right? There's a degree of confirmation bias you have to be very careful about. But to disregard what the business people actually think about their business is actually throw away potentially a lot of useful information. Um, of course, I let the data ultimately speak, but I can craft better testing of the data, better structure to the data if I understand at least where I'm starting from or where the business people are starting from. And that's a critical translation. I mean, there have been times where I've worked for companies where um, you know, they've told, given me their data, I've done an analysis, I've come back with a result that they thought was just completely, you know, Oh my gosh, that can't be true. What did you do wrong? <laughs> and I had to sort of help bring them along and explain the process and say, no, let, let's step back and show you exactly what we did. And we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this, and this is the answer. And this is why. And you bring them on the journey with you and they get there. Hmm. So, so for me, that foundational work and, you know, it's face to face, it's going in person, it's showing interest, it's listening. Those skills are critical. Um, it's not just the, you know, sitting in my little computer room, running my numbers in the back room, there's a whole other part to it that you have to do. So I find getting to the right people, being focused on the question, being respectful of people's times. I mean, people running a business don't want to spend infinite time with you, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but I think if you can get that foundation with some sort of really targeted focused questions, that's helpful. So back again, not to sound like a broken record, but if you frame the question correctly, That'll really allow you to sort of determine, okay, what is the domain knowledge I need? What do I think is really essential? Who is the right person to talk to mm -hmm. so that I can get there quickly? Question. Mm -hmm. um, if for a business person listening to this, like a, a leader, a director, an entrepreneur, um, business owner, at what point to, should they realize and how that they have a problem where they need to engage somebody like yourself or uh, a consultant, an external consultant? Like, how? Did, what's a telltale sign that you can 
recommend for people to look out for that something's going wrong. I don't know how to fix it. I need help. Yeah, look, that's a tricky question, right? Because even as a leader of a company myself, sometimes it's way after the fact, you're like, ooh. <laughs> right. Um, I think what I would say is always um, if there is a practical outcome like that you think is really important to your business um, and you're having uncertainty or you're trying to think to yourself, gosh, I don't know that I have full information on this really important decision. I think that's a good time to sort of reach out. I think another time you can sort of reach out is just simply, yeah, after something's gone wrong, you can reach out and we can try to reconstruct it. It's always a little better if you're more forward thinking. You know, we often talk about with executives, you know, having a seat at the table, right? People throw numbers around all the time. Um, but what we try to do is give you numbers that are actually going to answer your question and be defendable, not just sort of a number for the sake of cherry picking a number that sounds good. So um, another place where we found when we've done our courses for people where we've gone on site and taught you know, in groups about HR and other analytics, sometimes it's as simple as facilitating communication between business leaders, right? I've been surprised how many times we've been in a meeting and it's like, we talk about some concept about retention, let's say, and some other person who's in a different division, like, oh, well, I have data on that too. This data would be useful. And just getting those people talking about the different data sets they have. Mm. So, mm. Um, you know, one of the things we've tried to do is break down the barriers to people reaching out. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're always afraid to call a consultant because you think, oh my gosh, they're going to charge me a fortune and they're going to just turn this into a never-ending project. And like what we try to do is we try to be very focused. You know, part of our outreach, I mentioned our blueprint program. The idea is just simply if you have a quick targeted thing where you just want some advice, you can reach out to us for a small engagement just to talk through something. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get all your answers, but we've, we've tried to facilitate communication with potential clients so they can understand better. You know, not everybody can embark on a giant data project, but maybe they just need to talk to someone intelligently for an hour about the problem they're having. <laughs> okay, gotcha. That, that's 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 a great approach uh, to get some uh, just some talking going. Uh, the difference between something I don't know, like if this term is used before, just thought of it now. Um, so there's. A concept where people, consultants come in and especially with a big company, there is executives like you, like you said in that situation when uh, you told them the answer and they're like, this is not possible. Like, What's the difference between uh, or how how to identify uh, lip service analytics versus uh, hardcore numbers don't lie analytics? Like if a consultant's coming into my business and all they're telling me is what I want to hear, I'm happy. But how do I know that they're not bullshitting me just, you know, just to keep me happy? Look, I think um, there's a few things I would look to, all right? So one thing I always look to is, you know, sort of what is the um, like what is the background of the people you're talking to? And I don't mean that to be obnoxious. It's just like there are people that actually do work and sort of um, who are actually practicing this kind of work on a daily basis. And then there are people that kind of are pretending like, you know, and can sort of put together a pretty PowerPoint, but a pretty PowerPoint alone is not enough, right? The other thing I try to say to people is if you're getting data analytics work, if you can't understand exactly what you're being told, if I come into you and I start talking about, well, I ran this chow test and the chow test rejects the pooling of the model. And so then I did a control for this or that or this. And, you know, and, and if it just sounds jargony and like, you know, when somebody's not actually explaining to you what they're doing and what's driving the results, that's a pretty good sign that you don't have the right person. Right. Mm -hmm. I make sure my clients, when I talk to them, understand exactly what I did, even the technical stuff. It doesn't mean I'm doing a full-fledged tutorial on regression analysis and the Gauss-Markov theorem or whatever. I'm not talking about that. But they have to understand the intuition and what the levers are underneath the analysis. If someone's not explaining that to you in a way that is useful to you, they're probably not the right person or doing good work. The best work, and this is an old phrase from MIT, Explain it like you would to your grandmother. <laughs> um, and so I, I put such an emphasis on the explanation part, because I think if someone can articulate something clearly and concisely, that is a very good sign they understand the problem well and they know what they're doing. If they can't, that is a very good sign that they probably haven't thought it through rigorously enough. Oh, gosh, absolutely, absolutely. Um... I would love to ask you if there's something you can explain on this podcast as an example of maybe like, I don't know, uh, a simple uh, regret, not regression, like statistical model or something. But uh, before that, uh, I just want to say we do the same thing. Like I completely stand by that because in our uh, tutorials, like we have the machine learning A to Z course, which is one of the top selling courses 
in the world, top taken courses in the world on machine learning. And we specifically focus on the intuition behind the, the like um, models, you know, whether it's support vector regression, machine support vector regression, and so on, Bayes inference, and the application. We don't do the mathematical part because people can learn that elsewhere. Intuition is very important. Um, so yeah, so is there something that you can like give us an example of how you would teach somebody? No, I want to tell you actually something that's real practical. We're working on it right now. So as you know, with the coronavirus issue right now, the United States is starting to reopen. Mm -hmm. And one of the unique peculiarities of what's going on right now is um, we have 50 states with different governors. We have, don't really have a federal response right now. We have 50 individual state policies, which in fact are even varying within state. <laughs> wow. Okay, so it's quite interesting. And so there's this momentum building for, oh, the economy is reopening. What we're doing right now is we're running a study where we have collected systematically county level data on the coronavirus cases across the country. What you're seeing a lot in the news media is sort of these anecdotal stories of like, well, Florida reopened and the next day there was a spike in cases. Well, that doesn't make any sense on its face, right? Mm. Um, Similarly, you're seeing stories like, oh, Georgia reopened and the number of coronavirus cases have gone down. Clearly, there's no problem. We're back. Okay. Mm -hmm. These super simplistic narratives drive us nuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do is actually use what are called, you know, the technical term that is called a natural experiment. We have all this variation now and we have time series data where we can follow number of cases and we can follow the reopening. And in fact, we're getting some cell phone data where we're actually able to track movements to see how much the movements are increasing across states as they reopen. And we're actually trying to link, okay, what are we seeing in terms of number of cases in the reopening to get a real estimate of that in a statistical sense? And so what you're living off of is the variation in the opening, the changes in time, and the number of cases. However, there's a complication. The amount of testing is also varying at the same time. Mm. But what we're noticing is that some of these states that are reporting the cases are going down, it's actually because they're testing less. <laughs> I oh, well. think harder about these issues. So, so we're putting together a study. Where we're trying to disentangle this and sort of look. This is a hard problem, and I'm not pretending we have all the answers. But it actually is. So, what do we? We have a question. We have different sources of data. The variation in the data looks like at a minimum it's at a county level, and for some we have zip code level variation. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get a good measure of mobility changes with the laws, and what else could be driving the coronavirus. <laughs> so that's sort of the way we're laying it out. And, you know, I can't tell you what the answer is because we're working on it. It's a real time experiment, but that's the idea. And so mm -hmm. to me, if you can understand, well, looking at the number of coronavirus cases on the same day as a reopening doesn't mean anything because we know this occurs with a lag. The number of people that are flowing in and out will be a really important determinant for sure. We need to know what that does. And we have to know how much testing there is because the testing critically is going to influence what the data says. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's an important starting point. Now we could have a discussion. You might say, well, what about mask wearing? Is there something on mask wearing you could put into the model? Well, sure we could. I don't know if we can get it at every county level, but there are surveys on that. Or what about sort of the, the prior experiences with respect to hospitalization or different demographics or different occupations? There's lots of things we could do. But the point is, if you can understand the basic framework and what we're trying to live off of, which is the variation in the reopening over time, so we can really look to see what's going on, I think you got a good insight into what our model might show. Coach, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm starting to understand what you're saying. Like, I'm feeling it as if if I if I came to you for a problem, you sit down and you walk me through, even before you've done the analysis, you're like walking me through, this is what we're gonna do. We have this, we can add this data, we can, this is the plan, this is the step. So like, I'm I'm with you along the way. I'm I'm like your ally. Right. And you don't, you may have another idea. You're like, well, John, did you think about the fact that, you know, the experience in Europe maybe was different and maybe there's some data there that could provide a good benchmark for sort of different things. Yeah, of course. I didn't think about that. Well, maybe we could bring that data into the picture, right? Mm -hmm. The point is to make you an ally is a great word. I'm a partner with you. I'm not here to be telling you what to do. Yes. I'm going to provide my expertise to get to an answer. And I'm going to tell you what I think, but I don't have the monopoly on the good idea. Right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. The work product will be better and you're more vested in what I'm doing if you exactly understand what I'm doing, as opposed to me just speaking from authority and saying, well, we're going to do this. Now, granted, I don't want you to tell me whether I should do a heteroscedasticity correction or serial correlate like you know, <laughs> that. OK, but um, but that's not the point. But on the basic intuition and thinking through the issues, I think there's some room there to really shape the analysis. And I think that just creates better work product. Don't get mm -hmm. there are times where people give me suggestions and 
gently, you know, that's probably not makes sense to do for this reason, that reason. But you don't have to like be insulting to people. Like ideas are ideas. That's what that's sort of part of the creative process. Okay, uh, understood. And um, while you were speaking, I had this interesting idea that uh, you you are um, starting Edge Growth Analytics. Uh, you are at a advantage in the sense that you have access. You probably have access to a lot of data sets that other people won't even have thought of, right? Like, uh, you, well, know, it's you, interesting. you know, we've been doing a lot, you know, the data sets from our litigation are confidential. So we don't have access to those, but we do have, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things we do is we're constantly looking at what different data sets are out there. You know, there's, and I can tell you, the one we've been looking for is bicycle sales data, because there's a big series of stories in the US that bicycle sales have skyrocketed right now. <laughs> um, and so um, it is amazing how many unique data sets are actually out there for use. When the, when the pandemic started, we actually used data from OpenTable, which is the mm-hmm. reservation system. And we actually have a map we built, which shows how quickly the reservations declined as restaurants were closing across the country in those first two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a pretty cool graphic. And it's sort of, you know, so I think part of it is when you're creative about data, you can find, hey, well, I know about this data set, or, oh, this would be a really good data set to try to draw upon. And I think that's part of it is that when you're a data geek, you're just constantly looking for different data. And when you're working with a client, you help them identify that data within their own company. Gotcha. Um, I want to talk a bit about HR, because we've talked about coronavirus, about some data analytics. HR is a, clearly a, a big part of uh, what you do at, in both companies. Um can, do you have an, an interesting example of maybe an HR case or an HR consulting uh, project that you did, just to give us like a sense for what, what it means, a, analytics in HR? Yeah, so look, I, I think what I would talk about sort of generally, it's, and I, I gotta be a little careful about how I catch it, but let me start generally. The kinds of things that we do with HR analytics is someone has some kind of underlying labor problem, um, let's say a retention issue with their workforce, where they're just finding that they're losing good employees and they don't understand. The kind of things we could help with is, right, okay, well, what are the kinds of levers that could be affecting retention in that kind of situation? What are the competitive circumstances? Who are you losing your employees to? Are there pay disparities? Are there other industry factors? Are there dissatisfaction issues? So again, sort of framing questions in a way that's like, okay, I am seeing a practical business reality um, that I'm struggling with. There's oftentimes we work on things related to diversity goals and things like that, where companies are trying to be more diverse. And how do they do that? Um, Things like that. So there's any number of different types of questions that we can help with. Um, we generally find them in the recruiting, the retention, absenteeism, or just diagnosing problems that, you know, wow, we're having an issue and we don't know why. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And uh, that's, uh, you can do all of that through data analysis. Yes. Again, same process, though. I mean, I have to understand the company and I have to understand a bit of the culture and I have to understand how the business works, right? Because there are just certain factors. Different companies operate different ways. You know, a company is just as diverse as a product, right? So just like mm-hmm. in the case I told you about before, you know, learning about chocolate candy bars, learning about company X's culture and where they're drawing their workers from and what they do and what their policies are is the input into a good data analytics, HR analytics project on the other side. So it's the same process. It's just applied more specifically to the labor part of the world. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so into HR analytics is because one of my other specialties is what's called labor economics, which is really the field of economics about how the labor markets work, how our wages set, those kinds of things. And so um, I find that fascinating. And that's sort of partly what drove my interest in the HR piece of the world. I think it's a really critical overlooked part of successful businesses. And I also think it's an area where the data can be so powerful, but I think HR professionals are a little bit more afraid to use data than maybe some other areas. Why is that? Why why are HR professionals uh, among well, It's those? obvious. They're people people, right? I mean, who mm-hmm. goes into human resource management? A lot of people that do, they're, they're worried about helping people and they have really great people skills. Um, I said I taught at an HR school, a top HR school, and even there, the one statistics course they took, this HR managers took, was sort of terrifying for people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I think it's moved in a direction that is more data-oriented. But I also think the other reason why HR people sometimes are a little bit afraid of data is because they think it's replacing the people skills. Mm. It's divorced from the fact that you're still dealing with people and that all those other, I don't mean this insulting, soft skills that are so critical to being an effective HR person, listening, understanding what the problem is, getting to the heart of the problems, 
Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people interaction. The data does not replace that. The data complements that so you can effectively diagnose the problems. But I think the predisposal, and again, partly because data scientists do a pretty bad job of explaining things, um, they're not sensitive to that. So I think that's mm -hmm. where the disconnect comes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, uh, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that uh, in the long run, in like, I know, five to 10 years, uh, data will replace the soft skills to the HR function or not? I don't think it will completely replace. I think that's pretty impossible. Look, one of the greatest challenges of running any organization is dealing with the people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, just a practical, that's an age old mm -hmm. axiom, right? Um, yeah. People make a company um, that will never go away. But the data being a more systematic part of management, the mm -hmm. data being a basis for making decisions will continue to be important. So the ability to square what the data is showing with what we know about people and how we then craft management strategies, I think, is where HR is headed. And I think that's going to be a hallmark of effective HR programs and HR systems at your company. Mm. Okay. And I like Andrew Nyez, who's the founder of Coursera. I like his quote that uh, data is the new electricity. You know, like a hundred years ago, like only only about half the U.S. was electrified. Now you can't. I can't think of a single business, even a farm in the middle of nowhere, that's not using electricity. Uh, with data science and data analytics, it's going to happen like that, but much faster. Within ten years or so, I think maybe fifteen, uh, all companies are going to be using this because of competitive competitive pressure. So my question would be, as a business owner uh, of let's say a Fortune five hundred company or or a, a large organization or any kind of organization for that matter. Do I rely, to, to what extent do I rely on consultants uh, or external parties to come in and do the data analytics for me? And at what point should I consider building my own analytics function internally? And can, uh, can it help having the two for a certain period of time? Yeah, look, I think this is sort of like the, the famous make or buy decision. I think it depends on how much do you plan to integrate the data analytics into your work? Do you have the right people in place? Do you feel qualified to actually build out an analytics organization? I mean, one of the things that just in the, just in the existence, I'll give you a simple example from my business, just in the, the 20 years I've been you know, doing economic consulting and the 10 years as a professional economist entrepreneur with my own company, one of the biggest and most difficult hires we make are PhD economists. And in the time I've been hiring, it used to be that my main competition for PhD economists were universities. Like it was <laughs> coming to consulting or you could be in a university. And during the course of the last 10 years, suddenly these, you know, maybe you've heard of them, you know, Amazon, uh, Google, <laughs> um, they've started to hire economists and good economists. And so I found now my competition for people tends to be more of those companies, right? Mm. Now, those are the cream of the crop. They're pretty sophisticated buyers, you know. So now if you're a company that specializes in something else, the undertaking of building a data analytics organization could be challenging. I think ultimately, if you're a big enough company, you want to integrate it. I think that is definitely part of what you'd want to do. But I do think um, consultants will be pretty important, even in that context, to validate what's being done, to get sort of a good sense. You know, even if you have the most effective data analytics organization, you still need sometimes that outside set of eyes to help. And then what about all the other companies that aren't Fortune 500 companies that just can't dedicate the resources to build an internal analytics function themselves. Um, we have found, we have had clients that we've worked with where we've taught them how to do certain things. So there's also that collaboration where sort of the handoff of like, okay, well, we did these initial analyses for you. Okay, here's how you could do them. I'll tell you more often than not, they come back to us anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know? And so that's just a practical reality. But I think that's, a, I do see that as a trend, but I think there's just a whole host of companies that just aren't going to be in a position to build out organizations and effective organizations, and there will be some that do. And so, you know, um, yeah, the Amazons, the Googles of the world, they have exceptional data analytics, but other companies may not. And so it'll evolve in, you know, 10 years from now, who knows? But I still think there will be a need for outside people to come in and validate, to look at, or to help, and all those companies that just can't do it. Fantastic. Um, John, it's been, I just looked at the time, it's been crazy, amazing this hour. I have a whole list, probably another 10 questions I would love to ask you, but we're running out of time. So I'll just ask you one last question before we go to the contact details and where people can get in touch with you. And that question is, what would you 
like for the coming three years, let's not go five or 10 years, just three next three years with this whole coronavirus situation, with this mayhem happening in the world, there's a lot of business owners who are scared, who are fearful, who are like uh, close, like uh, trying to hold their resources as closely as they possibly can. And um, they're trying to you know, survive in this, in this winter that's come upon us. What would your wish to, to those of them listening to this podcast be? What, what would your recommendation or um, some, some inspiration for them right now? Well, I'll try. I mean, look, um, it is scary. I mean, I have a successful business and I'm scared and my colleagues are scared. I, I think everybody needs to be empathetic to each other first. You know, back to just a simple point. This is unprecedented. You know, economists use the term unprecedented way too much. This is unprecedented, right? If there's good news, I think there's two things. First, um, because this came on and because this is a health crisis married to an economic crisis, if we can get the health crisis under control, hopefully the economic crisis can then be controlled. So hope, first of all, for eventually vaccine treatment, some of those things are really important to a recovery. But as a business owner in this environment, what I would say is it is often the case that in these sort of adverse times is when most innovation comes. If you're thinking about it as an opportunity, what can you do in this environment to either retool your business, to think about what is a unique angle for your business, or just what are some things you probably wanted to think about that the good times might have obscured? I think people that take the downtimes and try to use them to aggressively set themselves up for the back end are the ones that end up so much more successful in the long run. So, I mean, that's the strategy we're doing at our firm is we're like, hey, what can we do proactively to set ourselves up to get through today and then for the future, be ready to take advantage of the new opportunities we weren't thinking about. And so I think that gives me some comfort, at least as a business owner, that I'm doing what I can. And also just be kind to yourself. These are really difficult times. <laughs> um, I'd remind myself that, you know, I said to one of my colleagues yesterday, you know, I'm not responsible for the fact there's a recession right now. <laughs> so, you know, like, so I think it's know that other people are hurting too. You're not alone. Fantastic. Thank you. Great advice. Um, John, where can people listening to this find you in case they're interested to read more about the amazing studies that you're doing or or your team is doing, or maybe even get in touch for some consulting projects or discussions? So if you go to our website, uh, www.edgeworthanalytics.com, and we also have the economics, edgeworthanalytics.com, you can send me an email there. Um, that, you know, that's the best way to get in touch with us. That's where all our studies are and descriptions of our work. So that would be the place to look. One word, Edgeworth Economics, edgeworthanalytics.com. Yep. Two different ones. (laughs) Awesome. And uh, is it okay for people to connect with you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for your time. It's been a huge pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. It was a really great conversation. Take care. So there we have it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and got lots of valuable takeaways. Uh, for me, I really enjoyed the part where John was talking about data science or data analytics in the space of litigation and what that means and how those proceedings go and how they are able to extract insights through data and then present it in front of a jury or in front of a judge. I found that very interesting. It's a space of analytics that we don't often think about, but as we could see from or hear from what John was uh, describing, Uh, There are lots of interesting data sets, lots of challenging problems that need to be addressed, lots of uh, huge cases that are happening in the space from the lasting for years. So it was very interesting to get this exposure. And of course, the business side of things, I think that was very valuable for me personally as a business owner. I was sitting on the uh, edge of my seat listening to what uh, John was saying. And hopefully if you're a business owner or if you are uh, in the management uh, of a company or the management team of a company that you've got lots of useful takeaways as well. And if you did get lots of valuable takeaways and you'd like to get in touch with John or follow their company and see what else they're doing, uh, then check out their websites and their company profiles at edgeworthanalytics.com or edgeworthaconomics.com. You can also connect with John on LinkedIn. And speaking of all of these amazing uh, resources, you can find everything that we talked about, including all these links and any other resources that we mentioned, plus transcript for this episode, plus the video version for this episode. Yes, this version, this episode is available in video if you're just listening uh, to the audio on Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes. You can also find the video on our website. Uh, all this is available at superdayascience.com slash 369. That's superdayascience.com slash 369. And uh, make sure to check that out and 
uh, connect with John, this uh, great thought leader in the space of data analytics uh, that uh, you would probably want to be uh, connected with, at least on LinkedIn. And uh, one final thing, if you know somebody who is a business owner, a director, a, a manager at a company, an entrepreneur, a founder, and they might need a refresher on economics or, or data analytics, or they might uh, you know, benefit from some interesting advice that John had to share today, send them this episode. It's very easy to share. Uh, just send the link superdayscience.com slash 369 and they'll be able to uh, watch the video, listen to the audio, find everything that they there. There we go. So that was us for today. Hope you enjoyed this episode with John Johnson and uh, talking about data analytics, uh, specifically in the space of litigation and data analytics consulting. Hope you find it useful and I look forward to seeing or hearing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.